Well, I think clearly, you know, rural areas and communities that have not been so dramatically impacted by the coronavirus will be able to get up and running a lot more quickly than, say, a place like New York City, um, where there's just so many people that, you know, you have to really be super strategic about how you do it. And I think it'll be a bit easier in rural communities. And because we haven't had the cases that we've seen in urban areas, that'll go a lot more smoothly. Meet Lori Higgins, a professor in the Department of Agricultural Economics and Rural Sociology and an extension specialist at the University of Idaho. Many COVID-19 hot zones are located in large cities, but small towns and rural areas aren't immune to the virus. Lori, who's an expert on rural communities, thinks there are likely benefits and challenges to living outside of big cities during this current pandemic. For her, everything from the availability of healthcare to our internet connections will likely impact how the pandemic impacts places like Idaho. Welcome everyone to The Vandal Theory. My name is Lee Cooper, and I'm a science writer here at U of I, and your host for The Vandal Theory, a podcast about science and research at the University of Idaho. Throughout the special season of the podcast, which is recorded and produced in my kitchen, we're going to meet U of I researchers who have insights into the current COVID-19 pandemic and its effects on Idaho and our Vandal family. Lori and I chat virtually about how places like rural Idaho are dealing with COVID-19. Hey, Lori. Welcome to our podcast, The Vandal Theory. I really appreciate you being here today. Well, thank you, Lee. It's really good to be here. And I know I I said be here. Uh, We are meeting virtually, uh, (laughs) as one does during a pandemic. And I gave you a call today because you are a rural sociologist. Now, what does that mean? So a rural sociologist looks at specific issues pertaining to rural communities, as opposed to more populated communities, cities, um, metropolitan areas. There's a long history of of this discipline, and it came out of agricultural colleges like ours as a way to support communities that were predominantly where all of our agricultural products come from. It's evolved in the last half century or so, um, as you can imagine, as um, agricultural businesses have changed pretty dramatically from small family farms to large consolidated agribusiness entities, largely. So the reason I called you, because you have obviously a lot of insight into what makes up the societies in, in places like Idaho, and Obviously, a lot of the hotbeds of COVID-19 are in these bigger cities. You know, lots of people pushed into tight quarters. But obviously, it's still we still have it here. We still have COVID-19 in Idaho. There's going to be pluses to living in a place like this. And there's going to be probably negatives to living in a places like this. And I just wanted to kind of walk through with you how, how will we in places like Idaho deal with this slightly differently than somewhere in an urban community. Right, right. So to start, let's kind of walk through the benefits first. Let's, okay. let's go to the silver lining of, of living out, <laughs> out where we do. What are, what are probably some of the best benefits to living in a rural community during a pandemic? Well, I mean, first of all, and we can see this in the numbers of cases in rural communities and rural places like Idaho, is that it's much easier for us to social distance from other people. 
even in our own communities. We have very wide streets. Very wide streets, yes. And we tend not to have the kinds of crowds in our stores that you might see in in an urban area. So it's easier to social distance. So we don't have the kind of community spread that you might see in a place like New York City, um, where it's just, if you go out in typical times, it's just impossible not to breathe the same air as, you know, hundreds of people in the course of a walk around the block, for instance. So that's one one benefit. When I would think that psychologically that makes quite a difference too. I know my afternoon walks are like saving grace. Yes. And that's another plus is that rural communities tend to be in places where it's much easier to get out and recreate, to go for a walk and not be in a crowd, even to go sit in the park or go to the dog park or a bike ride. Um, It's much easier to be out and about and now that the weather is getting nicer, that's, you know, particularly important. So I think psychologically, that's that's very helpful in that regard. Cool. And you were going to go on. I, I, I cut you off there. Uh, what was another benefit that you were going to talk about? Well, I think that, you know, I have not seen data on this, but I expect that people in rural communities tend to take care of each other. They feel like that is... That's what they do. That's part of the deal of living in a rural community. And it'll be interesting after um, this is not over, but as we're getting through this to kind of see and hear some more stories about how people have been taking care of each other. Um, We, you know, particularly worry about elderly people who are still living in their homes because they're at higher risk for contracting the virus and having severe uh, reactions to it uh, that, you know, they may not be able to go out and go do their own shopping, meals on wheels, senior centers, those kinds of places where people have typically gone to, you know, have social engagement and also for food um, have you know, been shut down. So I I expect that people in small towns are really looking out for their elders in a way that may not be the case so much in urban areas where you may not even know that you do have an elderly neighbor, for example. Um, So I think that's another benefit is just we have a we have an ethic that we we take care of each other um, in rural communities. Well, cool. What about, um, like, as we get kind of through this a little bit more, is there anything economics wise that, you know, being rural might actually be kind of a, a, a something to something to look forward to, potentially? Well, I think clearly, you know, rural areas and communities that have not been so dramatically impacted by the coronavirus will be able to get up and running a lot more quickly than say, a place like New York City, um, where there's just so many people that, you know, you have to really be super strategic about how you do it. And I think it'll be a bit easier in rural communities. And because we haven't had the cases that we've seen in urban areas, that'll go a lot more smoothly. Also, I'm reading in, you know, tourism research that 
there have been some surveys and, you know, asking people, you know, what they're anticipating doing once, you know, the restrictions are lifted pretty broadly. And I think people are going to be a little reluctant for quite some time to go to places where there are crowds, to places like theme parks and cities, concerts, those kinds of things, because um, they're going to be a little wary of potentially coming in contact with the virus. So people are going to be looking for the kinds of tourist experiences that we have in Idaho, um, thinking about places like, you know, Cascade and McCall, um, where you're going to go and you're going to be out on a boat in the water, or you're going to go hiking or kayaking, um, whitewater rafting, you know, all those kinds of things that, you know, we have in spades. And really a lot of our, our tourist opportunities are centered around, around those kinds of activities. So I think rural areas will see more tourism perhaps than they have seen and more quickly than other tourist areas will we'll see. Well, let's switch to the slightly gloomier side of the conversation. What would be some of the challenges that rural communities face um, during a pandemic? Okay, well, we're talking about economics, so let's let's stay on that. First of all, in rural communities currently, and this is why rural sociology has changed its focus somewhat from a predominant focus on agriculture and people's livelihoods with in agriculture and those kinds of communities is because most people in rural communities are employed in lower wage service jobs rather than agriculture anymore. So economically, people are, tend to be low income to start with. They tend to have jobs where they don't have benefits, they don't have paid leave, and they may be required to continue working even though the virus is still not contained. We don't have the testing to make sure that places are safe. We're still trying to figure out you know, what the safe practices are in workplaces. So people may have a lot less flexibility in terms of um, employment and being able to stay home or um, surviving, not being able to go to work. Um, also, businesses in small communities, such as restaurants and coffee shops and whatnot, they, they operate on thinner margins than businesses in urban areas where they have lots of traffic, right? Traffic is not a problem. But in small towns, you have less volume in, in business in general. So businesses may not be able to survive. And in fact, today, we just learned that in Pullman, Washington, our neighboring community, a coffee house that's been on Main Street for many years um, has has decided to close. They're not going to be able to reopen. They're going to keep their drive-through units open, but people ha are going to lose a place to go and um, sit and have coffee and do their homework or their syllabus or whatever that you know people in Pullman do in in coffee shops. I think we'll see a lot more of that as well. 
Well, let's talk then. We said one of the bonuses to living in the rural society is that we're literally far apart. We've got some room to stretch. But of course, there's a flip side to that. When we're far away from things, it's literally harder to get to the hospital. It's and there's not that many of them. <laughs> so can we talk, let's talk uh, kind of the medical side, medical access uh, mm-hmm. side of things. Yeah, well, t- rural communities t- tend not to have a lot of uh, medical services. In fact, in the last decade or so, about 120 rural hospitals have closed. 19 have closed in the last year. Are we talking in Idaho for those in numbers? No, in the country. In the country. Okay, yeah. sorry. I just wanted to make sure we clarified that. But that's, that's actually a pretty big percentage of the hospitals that were actually in rural communities. Mm-hmm. Um, not all of them are privately owned. Some are owned by um, local governments. I've heard that, that this has been an issue with the, the new bill that came out of Congress to, to help hospitals and clinics, the medical industry, that some of the government-owned hospitals are not going to be able to get some of that assistance. Um, I'm not sure if that's how it's going to play out, but that has been definitely some of the fear. So we see a situation where these, these hospitals, again, just like other businesses in rural communities, already operating on thin margins, have less, fewer people coming in for various procedures. Um, They've stopped doing the elective procedures, things like, you know, cataract surgery, things like that, that people can put off, they've been putting off. So rural hospitals have not been, have seen even less volume during this, the last few months of this crisis than they would have otherwise. So, so there's definitely jeopardy for rural health systems. In a lot of places, communities don't even have a clinic. So what do they do if they get sick? They have to drive, you know, sometimes as much as 30, 40, even an hour um, to get to a place where they can get some a, a medical attention. Um, this may make people more reluctant. Um, they may wait longer. They, which with COVID nineteen can be there's there's a fine line between when you really need need to be at the hospital. Right, right. Also, if people are waiting and then they do become very ill, there's longer wait times for ambulances and emergency medical assistance. So that puts people at at higher risk in rural communities. Ideally. There would be lots of new opportunities for telemedicine so that people, they don't have to think about it all on their own, that they would have a resource that they could easily go to like, hey, this is happening. Should I be worried? But in a lot of rural areas, there is very little to no broadband service or limited access to broadband. So I haven't seen the data yet about how much States have been able to expand telehealth to rural communities during this time, or if that kind of access has been impacting people, their health, or even their ability to get treatment in time. But I imagine that it's been challenging for a lot of rural people having to think, wow, do I drive to the city 
and try to see, get some help. I'm worried of going to a place where more people are that have the virus. So if I don't have it already, I might get it. And when you get there, there's been a lot of confusion about when you can get a test, when you qualify. People are worried, am I going to even be able to get a test? Or they may worry that I'm going to go and if I do have it and I need to be hospitalized, I'm not going to see my family until I'm back, I'm out of the hospital. So I think there's a lot of factors at, at play when people are, are weighing um, their options and what they should do if, if they are ill in, in this moment in time. So broadband has been widely cited in coverage of the impact of COVID on 19 on um, rural communities. And in addition, I mean, we, we talk about rural communities sometimes as dis- digital deserts. Well, and you bring that up, that also, I mean, not only health-wise to the, the telehealth stuff, but obviously that's going to have, we sent all of our children home um, <laughs> and right. are trying to teach them through broadband, which I know has posed challenges. Oh, absolutely. I think a lot of kids, they have to go drive into town if they're not already living in town, or their parents have to drive them into town, obviously. And they have to find a parking lot of a place that has a free Wi-Fi, a a hotspot. There there have been reports that a lot of uh, school districts have been creating hotspots in different places so that the, so that kids can go and and access the internet so that they can get their assignments and do their homework but again it would be so much easier if they could do it in their own home their parents don't have to drive them if they're even able to do that if they're able to take time off of work to do that or do they do it at night or you know i mean it just presents a lot of problems for just another hurdle students and families big hurdles exactly all right well i don't know if i want to end on a on a downer note like that um <laughs> <laughs> but i mean like you said i think maybe one of the the good things about living in a rural community is it does look like at least there's a chance. Obviously, we don't we we don't know the future, but that we might be able to get back to whatever the new normal is slightly sooner than some other places. It seems. Yeah, and I I think that it I think that's the bright spot, and I and I think too that you know it it's just going to be a whole lot less complicated to do that in rural places than it is in urban places. I feel grateful every day. I live in Moscow, Idaho. Everything's just magnitudes of order more complicated. The the more densely populated that that that's the bright spot for sure of living in rural communities right now. And hey, there may be more things that we don't we don't even anticipate. We don't know, you know, what's going to bloom from this difficult times call for innovation. And so I think we're going to see a lot of innovation and a lot of people sort of thinking outside the box and you know how we go forward and keep our communities safe maybe if we don't want to end on a on a sad note i can read you something i'm doing a survey in a small town in montana right now and one of the surveys came back with a a handwritten note in it and if if it's okay, I'd like to I'd like to read that too. It's very short, but sure, that'd be great. It, it speaks to 
you know, why people live in communities and, and why they will continue to live in communities. Um, this woman says, while I applaud your attempt to discover the strengths and weaknesses of our community using scientific method, my fondness for the community does not lend itself to checking boxes. I like living here because children can still play in the streets and sometimes drivers must give way to the important business of play. I like our town because two rigs can stop side by side for their drivers to visit. I like our town because there is room for subsistence workers, wood gatherers, and handymen to raise their families, complete with the mess that livelihood entails. This town has the space and acceptance for all members of the entire socioeconomic spectrum to live and interact respectfully. I really like that. And that's that's definitely going in the survey report. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're going to get me all teary. I know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, Lori, I really appreciate you taking the time this afternoon to talk with me. Oh, you bet. Thank you, Lee. It's been It's been a great experience. If you were interested in today's topic, I think you'll enjoy learning about a few other U of I research projects. Geographer Grant Harley and his colleagues will be using tree rings to reconstruct summer air temperatures in the eastern United States, all the way from North Carolina to eastern Canada. This new work will look back over the past 300 to 500 years of temperatures and help scientists understand temperature trends across the northern hemisphere and predict future climates. Many climate change skeptics hold pro-environmental views, according to a U of I study by researchers Kristen Haltner and Dilshani Sarath Chandra. The researchers interviewed 33 Idahoan climate skeptics and found that many had concerns about pollution and deforestation and supported policies for clean air and water and alternative energy sources. Ann Brown from the Department of Movement Sciences conducted a study on female collegiate dancers and their protein intake. The findings suggest protein supplementation for 12 weeks could be a simple way to improve the diets of female dancers without altering overall body weight. All right, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to The Vandal Theory. We hope you'll visit our website, uidaho.edu slash vandaltheory, if you'd like more details about Lori's work. While you're there, you can also read our show notes and email me with comments. And please subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. We'd really love it if you'd rate and review us, too. We appreciate your support, and please let your friends and family interested in science and research know about the podcast. Help us tell our story. I'm Lee Cooper, and thanks for joining us.